What if you loved going to work almost every day? What if you were able to create a workplace where people felt joy? Our guest today has done it, and he's here to inspire us to do more for the people we lead. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 122. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help people be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal productivity, the people side of organizations, business, and I am so glad to have you back. If you're joining the show for the first time, welcome. So thrilled to have you as part of the Coaching for Leaders community. And if you're back for the beginning of another year, welcome back and so glad to be back with you at the start of the year. And for the beginning of the year, an important conversation that I think will inspire all of us. I know it's inspired me to think about the workplace differently and what we can do and how we all have the ability to influence a great environment that we work in and to be able to make real change for how people approach their work. And that's why I'm thrilled to be able to welcome a guest today who's uh, not only done a lot of thinking on this, but a lot more importantly than that, has practically been in the trenches doing this for a number of years and has a tremendous track record behind him. And this is one of the conversations I have often with members of our community. In fact, a couple people I've talked with this uh, as an ongoing question is, okay, well, you know, the current corporate America, at least, or corporate kind of uh, default culture, for a lot, lack of a better term, isn't working for a lot of people in a lot of organizations. And there's a lot of cynicism in a lot of workplaces, and especially larger businesses. And how do we cut through that? What can we do differently? And that's often the question I'm asked is, okay, well, I know what I'm doing as a leader or manager or we're doing as an organization or culture isn't working, but what's the alternative? How can I get better? How can I do something different than what's traditionally done? And that's why I'm so excited about this conversation because this is an example of something that's done different. And Richard Sheridan is a wonderful example of that. Uh, someone who's led a lot of technical teams, been able to be a great example of creating a culture filled with joy. And he is an author of a book that has just come out, but that's not why I'm having him on the show, um, because he's an author, but more importantly, because of what he's done with Menlo Innovations. And I heard about this company's work even before his book came out. And so I'm thrilled to welcome here today. So let me go ahead and introduce him. I'm so pleased to welcome my guest this week, Rich Sheridan. Rich is the co-founder and CEO of Menlo Innovations, and he is the author of the new book, Joy, Inc. And the subtitle of the book is what caught my attention. It's how we build a workplace people love. And I saw an article about Rich and his company online a couple of weeks ago, and I said, this is a guy I've got to have a conversation with and learn more about what he knows and what he's doing in his organization. Um, not only because I'm curious, but I know it'll be really valuable to so many of you in the leadership work you're doing. So Rich, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Glad to have you. Great to be here, Dave. So um, you know, we were talking before we got online here to start recording about the book. And as we got to talking, we were uh, discussing that 
uh, you know, a lot of the folks who listen to this show are um, newer leaders, and and a lot of times we're trained to do something else and had a have a technological background or experience doing something very successfully, and then have gotten into the role of managing people and are really trying to figure out some resources to do that really well. And you said, hey, that's that's exactly where I was a while back, is trying to kind of figure out and navigate my way. So I'm wondering if even before we talk about what you're doing at Menlo, if you could speak a little more to how did you make your way from from being in, a, in another role and then eventually becoming a you know pretty successful CEO? Yeah, no, I'm happy to explore that. You know, Dave, I started out as a programmer. So my life was that of a technician, of a technical guy sitting at a computer terminal, cranking out code for whatever employer I was working for at the time. Uh, I fell in love with programming when I was a kid. Uh, This was a long, long time ago. Uh, Many of your listeners would probably be amazed to know that there were, in fact, computers available to kids in 1971. But there was, and I touched computer for the first time in my life when I was 13 years old. Cool. And I knew what I knew what I was going to do the rest of my days. Uh, I thought this was going to be a great big frontier. I probably had no idea how true that was going to be. And very quickly, uh, you know, dove in, became very technical, very knowledgeable about computers and software and programming and that sort of thing. Eventually, got a couple of technical degrees from the University of Michigan bachelor's in computer science and a master's in computer engineering and launched my career as a programmer. Um, And as often is the case, and probably a lot of your listeners have gone through this, as you work for a few years uh, and you demonstrate some leadership qualities, you you start getting pulled up, whether you're ready for it or not. uh, You start being put in charge of a small group. You start leading. You start beginning the title of uh, project leader or maybe even manager, that sort of thing. And that was certainly happening to me. And very quickly, I think the first thing I leaned on personally was what I call managerial mimicry. I just started emulating the people who are managing me. Mm. Even if I wasn't quite comfortable with that approach, it was the only one I knew. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, I do the management by walking around and annoying people. You know, hey, how's it going? Hey, what you working on? Hey, you know, and I'd start doing probably micromanaging because I was taught how to do that by my managers. Mm. And, uh, and then projects started not going well. And they started, uh, uh, you know, missing deadlines or missing scope or the, the interactions that it wasn't with my team, but with the people I was serving, whether it was customers or internal stakeholders in the companies I worked for, that wasn't going well. I started having to make presentations in business meetings about the work, my technical work my team was doing or I'd have to start making promises to customers and that wasn't going well. And there was certainly a time in my career where I felt like all the wheels were coming off. Oh, interesting. And, and I thought it was me. I thought there was something fundamentally wrong with me. I thought, Hey, maybe I'm not cut out for this leadership stuff. Um, but as I peeked around my industry, I started to realize this was happening everywhere. This was, a almost a, a, a disease. Um, that uh, software projects were failing all over the place. And so I started reading books and a lot of authors greatly influenced me and they weren't authors that were writing about technical things, but I was fascinated with and have been ever since is how do you organize people effectively? How do you build great teams? 
And so there were many books I read early on in my career, uh, like uh, The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge, Peter Drucker's book on management, Tom Peters' book In Search of Excellence. And I was searching for something. I needed to find a different way than the way the rest of my industry and the way I was behaving. And ultimately, uh, you know, there's a lot of story between those days and today. But ultimately, that search led me to the story I now tell in Joy, Inc. Hmm, and wow. the culture we built here at Menlo. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear you say that because I've had the privilege of working with some software teams in my career. And what you've articulated is almost always my experience. It's, it's not the technical things that generally are getting in people's way of being productive. It's organizing people. It's getting the communication working. It's it's the leadership, the people aspects of the job. And so, uh, and so, I'm, that's great that you've been able to really find a way to to do that more effectively. And uh, you know, one of the reasons you you showed up on my radar screen, Rich, is because a lot of people come and visit your office and your facilities. And um, I'm curious. What is it about what you've done at Menlo that's attracted so much attention and so much interest from outsiders? Yeah, we have already done 330 tours this year for 2,500 people who have come from around the planet to to visit us, which is kind of crazy. We're a fairly small team. We only have about 50 people. We're in the basement of a parking structure in downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan, which many consider to be the flyover zone of the United States. And yet they're (laughs) coming from all over the planet to visit us. And I think uh, they're coming to find something. They're in search themselves. They've heard about us. They get on airplanes and they come. And what they come to see is a culture, which is kind of weird, right? Can you actually see a culture? Is it visible? Is it tangible? Is it measurable? Can you, is there pieces and parts of a culture you could take away by, uh, by visiting? And I think that's why they keep coming back because we don't really advertise the tours per se. People just talk about them and you hear about them. Hmm. And that leads to that word of mouth spread and then more people come. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to go through even kind of a verbal tour if you want, just to give you a sense of what people see when they're here. Yeah, that would be cool. I'd, uh, I'd love that. So uh, if, I, if we walked into your facility, what would we see? What would we, what would we hear? Because I know you talk in the book about open space and that Menlo's a pretty noisy place. So mm-hmm. give, me, give me that picture of what that looks like. Yeah, it's um, uh, amazing. I, I often get a chance to hear the visitors the minute they walk in the door, the second they walk in the door, and the first word I often hear out of their mouth is, wow, because I think they feel the energy. There is the, the human energy in our space is palpable, which is, stands in stark contrast to the majority of my industry that tends to work quietly in darkened seas of sensory deprivation chambers called cubicles uh, with earbuds in their ears and silently clicking away on keyboards. And Menlo is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, what you described is every software group I've ever seen when I walk in. Exactly. Yep. And so Menlo is one big open room. I know the idea of an open office concept is controversial and people will rail against it. And, you know, I understand why that is. But it isn't just about the open space. It's the structure that operates inside of it. But in our open space, there are no walls, offices, cubes, or doors. There are three glassed-in conference rooms so that our customers can be away from the noise when they're talking to us. Um, 
I sit out right in the room with everybody else. So there's no corner office for the CEO. Um, the space is very flexible. We have pull downs from the ceiling that bring in electrical and, and network. Uh, we have uh, lightweight aluminum tables that people can just move around where they need to. There is no permission to ask to change the space. There are no space police. There's no facilities people. Team makes the space be exactly how they want it to be. They, they organize the tables in the fashion they want. And so the first thing people see, I think, is just humans working together very collaboratively. Hmm. Um, on deeper inspection, uh, I point out to them maybe one of the more unusual aspects of Memo, and that is that we all work two to a computer. Two people, one computer, all day long, working on the same task at the same time. Those pairs are assigned, and we switch them every five working days. And so now, all of a sudden, we've instantiated talking into our process. So it's a noisy place because people have to talk about the work they're doing as they work two to a computer. If you're typing and I'm there with you, uh, you need to be articulating what it is that's on your mind as you're typing. And I need to be asking you questions of clarification, of, of consideration for what we're trying to do, of maybe pointing out a, a a flaw in your thinking that concerns me. And now we're in a discussion and those discussions are happening everywhere in the room. So that's the next thing people notice is how closely people are working together and how much they're talking to one another. This is really an interesting concept. And when I read about this, I was thinking, wow, that's that's so different than how so many organizations work. And I think the term you all use is pair partners. Am I right on that? Yes. Yeah. So... Yeah. How, how did that get started, and what is the value that that brings that you wouldn't get in a more traditional working environment, Rich? Sure. Uh, in my search, in my author-informed uh, uh, search, uh, there was a book that came out in early 2000 by a guy named Kent Beck, and the book is called Extreme Programming Explained. And uh, back then, this was just before Menlo started, back then I was uh, vice president at a traditional software design and development firm, a traditional software product company, and it was the exact opposite of Menlo. Everybody was in their private offices and cubes, and, um, uh, and you know, it was just a traditional environment that you're probably used to seeing. And I read this book by Kent Beck, and, in, and there were a whole bunch of things he talks about in the book. But one of the things that he mentions is this concept of pairing. And Kent's philosophy, which I still buy into this day, was we've all had this experience. We've all had a moment in our careers, no matter what we were doing, where when we had a tight deadline to meet or quality was utmost importance or, or it was just so important to, to hit a deadline with stuff that works, that we grabbed somebody and said, hey, Dave, come here a second. I need you to work with me on this. And we worked together. Maybe it was for hours. Maybe it was for days. Maybe it was even for weeks. And when we got done, we realized it was probably some of the best work we've ever done in our lives, in our careers. And we were, we were energized by it. We were supported. We felt safe because we were taking a risk by pushing forward so quickly. But with that pair partner by my side, we actually produced such great work. You know, when you and I worked together, it was just awesome what came out of it. And what Kent looked at over the course of his career was he's like, hey, I had those experiences. And then when the project was done, we went back to work in the normal way. 
back to the lonely environment of programming. And his attitude was, hey, if it worked under high pressure, what if we just worked like that all the time? What if we took that practice to the extreme? What if we just did it all the time? Hmm. And so that's really where caring programmers started for me. But it didn't take me long with my management and leadership experience at that point to realize the construct of caring is not one that only benefits programmers. It benefits project managers. It benefits QA people. It benefits designers, user experience designers. The same benefits I get from pairing programmers, I can get in all those different roles. Interesting. So it's it's kind of everything that's done in the organization is done by two people working together and collaborating continually. Yep. They sit side by side. They're working on the same task at the same time, supporting each other, challenging each other, pushing each other, pushing for a better outcome than would have ever come with each of us working alone. So this is fascinating. Yeah, this is fascinating because one of the things that when I, I think of, and I think a lot of us who work in that more traditional environment, a lot of times, you know, we're used to getting in an office environment, getting interrupted and having people, um, you know, interrupt us on what we're trying to get done. And I, I think the conventional wisdom is, is that if we can sit alone for a while, we'd actually get a lot more done. And a lot of people say that, me included. And so how does it, how do you do that and stay productive and stay focused? Because I'm really curious about how that works. Yeah, interestingly, think about, um, uh, you know, you, let's say we have something really important to talk, uh, or something important to work on. And, um, and you have some knowledge about that thing, and I have some knowledge about that thing. And let's say we're off in two different offices, and um, and they kind of, you know, we managerially, we split the work between us. You know, actually, a good example of this is there's a patent attorney out in San Francisco who's employed many of these same strategies once he learned them from us. And he realized that putting two patent attorneys together actually produces a better patent faster if you're paired versus if you're working separately because one patent attorney knows domain and the other one knows patent law and they keep heaving this document back and forth, but without collaborating on it, um, they miss some subtle things along the way. And so that it takes longer to iron out those problems. So they push themselves together by bringing their unique knowledge together. And of course, what are you doing at the same time? You're learning a little bit about the other person's expertise as, as well. So you come out better people at the end of it as well. Same thing happens in coding. Same things happen in design. Um, you know, if, if we're separated, you work on your stuff in your head and your ideas. I work on my stuff in my head and my ideas. We both get stuck. There's nobody there to unstick us. We, we, we sit there, we look staring up at the ceiling in our stuckness, but there's nobody there to say, hey, Rich, what are you thinking about? Uh, and so what we get is this incredibly focused attention. They push each other all day long. You get stuck, I push you along. I get stuck, you push me along. And so it's this constant push forward. So you actually end up getting way more done at a much higher rate of speed, at much greater quality, much more completeness of thought, much less problems and, and holes in thinking and that sort of thing by working in pairs like this. A lot of organizations and leaders espouse the um, the idea of being creative and making mistakes and that getting to a better objective. But I think in practice, a lot of organizations really don't want people to make very many mistakes. 
And yet, as I'm paging through your book, there's a picture of a sign that says, make mistakes faster. And you call this the bedrock of the culture. So I'm curious about that and how that plays a part in in helping people be productive. Yeah, I mean, I would love Dave one day to run a mistake-free organization. I don't think that's going to happen on this side of heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So let's just all acknowledge in human organizations, we're simply going to make honest mistakes born out of good intentions and hard work. We're going to make mistakes. Our philosophy is, okay, let's acknowledge that. Let's just assume. I think every one of your listeners will agree that's true in their organizations as well. So how about if we're going to make mistakes, let's make them faster. Let's make them as quick as possible so that we can correct them while they're still small, while they while they won't be deadly to our organization or the project or the client relationship. Mm. And so our philosophy is simply acknowledging the human nature of we're all humans. We're going to make mistakes. Let's not get all wound up about them. Early on, James Goble, my co-founder, had a great way to remove fear out of the room around mistakes. He told the team when they were, you know, early on, we're trying to instill this philosophy and, and somebody's sort of like, well, yeah, that's, that's good for you to say, but you're the leader, you're the co-founder, you're the one of the owners. And James is like, okay, here we go. If something goes wrong in this room, every one of you is empowered to say, it's James's fault. Just blame it on me and then move on. Mm-hmm. One of our programmers picked right up on this, Ted. He's still here with us to this day. And, and as soon as anything goes wrong, he's like, that's James's fault. Okay, good. Now that we've established blame, let's move on and solve the problem. <laughs> that's awesome removes a ton of fear out of making mistakes because here's the thing. And I talk a lot about fear uh, when I talk about Menlo and I talk about the systematic removal of fear from the room. Mistakes are going to happen. Mistakes are often seen by organizations as bad news. If we establish a culture of fear, no one is going to find out about the mistakes. The bad news won't be shared. It doesn't make the bad news go away. It simply disappears. And suddenly we have projects that seem to be right on track, that seem to be going okay, that seem to be perfectly on schedule and on budget and meeting the the needs of the, the corporation that we're working for. And then right around delivery time, all the wheels come off. And everybody's like, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Fear systematically drove bad news into hiding. Bad news didn't go away. It just built up like, poison in the groundwater. And then one day it killed the whole project or killed the whole team or killed the whole company in some cases. Wow. So that, that just, it's, it's funny to hear you speak about that because what you've articulated is so true in so many organizations. And yet it happens every single day is people get paralyzed by fear and mistakes kind of get covered up. And like you said, right before deliveries, kind of things tend to, that's when people are pulling 80 hour weeks and trying to fix all the problems. I'm wondering, Rich, you know, I, I know that you're a pragmatist as far as, you know, people who read this book who don't work in organizations like yours of what would someone do who's, you know, in a leadership role who could bring some of that to their organization that may not necessarily have that, that value or that philosophy right now? Yeah, you know, for for me, I think, uh, well, uh, let me offer up, I, I think I know how my book is going to be used. 
I have a feeling sometime in January or February, there's going to be a copy of Joy Inc. showing up on bosses' desks all over the country with dog-eared pages, highlighters, and post-it notes, but it will be delivered anonymously to the boss. Hmm. <laughs> because they're going to see, you know, some budding leaders, maybe some of your audience is going to see some, uh, it's, it's going to expose some things in their own organization and say, we really need to talk about this. Um, you know, I, I think what I see generally is most organizations are simply filled with good people, with great intentions, terrific training and skills, uh, wonderful uh, uh, humanity inside the organization. But for some reason, culturally, the organization is built on this bedrock of fear, not on safety. Um, and so, therefore, everybody's behaving the wrong way. And I think the way to start breaking down that barrier is often in small steps to begin with. Try some simple experiments. Uh, when I first did this inside of my old organization where I was a VP, I had the intention of moving to this with my whole team, but I started out with two people. I did a very safe, simple experiment. It was kind of off radar, but not completely. People knew I was doing it. Uh, but I got a chance to see if I had any good effects of this before you know, I, I did the sea change thing, which ultimately I did, and that required a different kind of leadership at the time, and I talk a little bit about that in the book as to how I pulled that off. But ultimately, you can't flip a switch and create a new culture in your organization without taking small steps along the way to test things out and see how far you can go. Speaking of human beings and the human aspect of all of this for us, one of the section headings in your book says superstars need not apply. And that's also different than what we hear from most organizations. Most organizations say we want to find the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest. Tell me what you mean by that and how that plays out at Menlo. Yeah, I, I often say this at conferences when you know organizations say, well, we only hire the best and the brightest. I'm like, really? Where do the worst and the dimmest go? Uh, <laughs> it's just amazing to me. You know, Everybody seems to hire the best and the brightest. It must be like Lake Wobegon where all kids are above average. Um, you know, here's, here's why I talk about superstars, and, and, uh, and it has to do with the fact that when organizations hire superstars and, and anoint them as such, they don't have to get along with anybody. They're safe. I'm a superstar. I don't have to collaborate with you. Even if you're a superstar, I'm a better superstar than you, or I'm a superstar about my piece. You're a superstar about your piece. And all of a sudden, what you don't have is you don't have teamwork. You don't mm. have collaboration. You don't have trust. And that's why we talk about, I can build an extraordinary team with just better than ordinary people. I think we have great people here at Menlo, but they're not superstars. They're not the top in the graduating class from some of the best colleges and universities. I've got a team, and they know how to work together. And I think a team can beat any strategy, any technology. You know, Lencioni said in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he opened the book with, it's not finance, it's not strategy, it's not technology, it is teamwork alone that is the ultimate competitive advantage, both because it's so powerful and so rare. And you don't, I don't believe you build teams with superstars unless you find superstar team players. And I think our, our interviewing process actually filters first for teamwork, first for collaboration, first for what we call kindergarten skills, long before we're looking at what, what technical things do you know or what design things do you know. 
another thing you talk about in the book is gr- the principle of growing leaders and not bosses. Can you tell me about how you make that distinction at Menlo and why that's an important part of the culture? Sure. You know, bosses love command and control. Bosses like to tell people what to do, regardless of whether they want to do it or not. Um, Leaders have to influence people. Leaders lead because they can encourage followers to follow. Uh, if, If you can't get somebody to follow you because of your, in my mind, gentle, influential leadership, because they trust you and respect you and you offer the same dignity and respect in return, no org chart is going to allow you to lead the team. No title or office or or, uh, or authority level that was granted to you by others is going to cause you to be a, a, somebody who can actually get something done inside of an organization. You might get lip service. You might get people saluting you and saying, yes, sir. Heck, even the military knows that isn't how you lead uh, a group of soldiers. They've got to respect their leader. And the only way to do that is through the influence of leadership, not through uh, the hierarchical control of bosses. And how does that work then at Menlo, Rich? Do you, is there a traditional hierarchy of leadership just executed a different way, or is it a very flat organization? I'm, I'm kind of curious how that plays out and how, how it works to be successful in your organization. Well, I'm the CEO here and one of the co-founders, so you'd think I'm the boss, uh, but for example, I have virtually no say who gets to join the organization. Oh, so the hiring decisions are made by the team. The promotion decisions are made by the team. I used to try and influence that, and every time I did, uh, I found out that the team was not as sorry, not as accepting of the people who were joining as they were of the people they chose to join the team. So I just looked at that and said, I'm out. I just, I don't need to be part of this. If you believe in these people enough to bring them in and then mentor them and coach them and influence them, that's such a more powerful way to lead. So no, we don't have bosses here. We don't have a hierarchy here, uh, but we do have leaders. No question we have leaders, but the leadership can come from virtually anywhere in the organization. It's not a title. It's not a role. It's not an office. It's just simply, are you able to influence others? Hmm. And so this is really, because um, I know I hear more and more about organizations doing this. How does that play out as far as like, do you do performance reviews? Who decides like how much people get paid? Is that, the, or is it just totally different than what we're used to in a traditional organization? Well, I think it is totally different because number one, we don't have annual performance reviews. We eliminated those. We never had them. Uh, even Deming said that's probably the most egregious tool American management has ever created because if I do an individual performance review of Dave, it means I'm pitting Dave against the rest of the team. I'm rewarding Dave for what Dave did, and often in most organizations, what Dave did came at the expense of others on the team. So now, that doesn't mean everybody makes the same amount of money here. We have 15 different pay grades here across five different broad categories. And so the only way you make more money here at Menlo is to move up within each category and then from one one uh, level to another over time. And so in the way that happens is it's the only way anything happens here is through peer review. And so if you wanted to move up here, let's say you're an associate level three and you want to move up to the next grade, which is a consultant level one here. The way you do that is you raise your hand and say, you know what? I'd like to get some feedback on my performance. 
And uh, we gather a set of people around you, many of which you've chosen, others that might be handed to you as well, people you work with, people you work side by side with. You can imagine how much how important this is in a paired environment, right? <laughs> you have to sit side by side with these people for eight hours a day. What could I possibly bring to the table that would be more impactful than the people who are sitting next to you all day long? And so then you sit around at this feedback lunch and we talk about as a team, and I'm typically not invited, and they don't, they, they don't exclude me, but they don't need me there. Um, and they're talking about how's Dave doing? How does Dave feel Dave's doing? Have Dave talk about it? Uh, how does it go in the pair partnering? How does it go in the, in the broader discussions that we have when we have uh, more group type of discussions around particularly difficult, challenging topics in the projects we're working on? And, you know, where does Dave think he needs to uh, uh, step up into leadership and so on? And if, if everybody's feeling good about Dave, they'll move you up to the next level. Or if they don't, if they think there's something missing, they'll give you some pretty specific feedback on, Dave, you need to work on these three things. You need to be a better prayer partner. You need to think out loud better. You need to uh, not try and force your thinking on your peer partner, you need to be more collaborative in this. Uh, we see these specific times when that isn't happening. And these feedback lunches can happen as often as you want them to. Hmm. Because our goal is not to hide things from you. Our goal isn't to save them up for that final annual performance review where it feels like an avalanche coming down in your head because the boss saved up all this stuff that you need to be working on for the last year. Wouldn't it have been nice to know that? You know, lots of times along the way so you can keep improving. And that's really where the team uh, comes in and, and becomes your coach and mentor for moving up an organization. I love the philosophy of no surprises at reviews. And so I, I love that concept of just giving people feedback whenever they want it and engage with it. That's 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 really cool, Rich. It's it's so neat. I've, I'm, I'd love to have an hour to talk with you just about how that process works and how you how people have learned to communicate effectively. But uh, but in the interest of time, I, I got to ask you at least one other question here. Um, sure. There's there's a picture in the book of a guy holding a baby uh, at, at yeah. work. And so, uh, and you, I think the term Menlo babies is used in the book. Um, tell me, how does that work? How do you guys have babies at work? And <laughs> what's what's up with that? Yeah, no, it, was, it was kind of a fun moment about seven years ago now when, one of our team members, Tracy, had little Maggie. She was off on maternity leave for three months, and then she was ready to come back to work. But there were no viable daycare options for a three-month-old for Tracy. Grandparents were out of town. Daycare centers wouldn't take a three-month-old, yet she was ready to come back to work. And we, were, we wanted to have her back. And she looked at me. She says, I'm not sure what to do. And I looked at her, and I said, bring her in. And she said, what do you mean? I said, bring her into work. And she said, all day? I said, sure. She said, every day? I said, yeah. And she said, where would I put her? I said, she's not going anywhere, anywhere Tracy. She's three months old. Just put her in a bassinet <laughs> on the floor wherever you're working. And she goes, yeah, but what if she makes a fuss? I said, here, it's noisy all day long, like a noisy restaurant. You'll never hear it. She goes, but Rich, what if she really makes a fuss? And I said, Tracy, I trust you. You're the mom. You'll do the right thing. We'll figure it out together, which is a really really right in the heart of the spirit of Menlo. And, um, and it turned out it worked, it worked great. And it was seldom Tracy that had to rescue Maggie. You know, in a big open room, when mom can see exactly where Maggie is all the time, it was often the team that would rescue Maggie when she was fussing. So you'd see all kinds of people holding the baby, including me. Um, 
That's awesome. And they, that was eight Menlo babies ago. Wow. And uh, so, you know, the basic model, and I know babies can't work everywhere. If you're working in a, in a, in a, in a manufacturing facility or a steel plant or a pharmaceutical uh, uh, industry where you got dangerous chemicals all around, of course you can't bring babies into work. That doesn't make sense. But, but it's so often we're willing to kill ideas like this before we even experiment with them. And, uh, and what was funny was we discovered something really, really important through all of this, that when we brought a baby to a client meeting here at Menlo, the client behaved better. Oh, the baby actually became great. part of a marketing effort of Menlo. They were like, oh, the baby's <laughs> there. This is so cute. That's you awesome. Know? And so, you know, and then people started looking at us different. They were like, man, you guys are just amazing in how you think about your team and your people and your culture and all that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. And then the dad started bringing babies in. Uh, the picture you see in the book, I think, is of Greg and Ellie. Um, and uh, that's a, we actually had a couple here. Uh, Greg and Katie brought in Ellie. And uh, they were here together, so they could kind of pass her back and forth between them. Uh, but John, uh, his wife works somewhere else, but John would bring Henry in. So we've had two Menlo dads, uh, actually three. Archer and Kimberly brought in a couple of their kids when they were born. So it's not uncommon. Uh, it's not just moms bringing in their babies. Wow, fabulous. You know, I it it's sort of, um, this conversation reminds me of that movie Avatar. Did you ever see that movie, Rich? Yes. So when that movie came out, um, I don't know if you read any of this. There, there were a lot of people went to see the movie, and this movie articulates this amazing culture and this kind of nirvana way of living. And a lot of people came out of the movie feeling really depressed because they're like, wow, you know, I feel like there's so much potential our society could have, and yet we don't live up to that. And as I'm thinking about this interview, I'm thinking there's people listening who are saying, wow. It's so cool that, and the courage you've had as a leader to create this culture and to get a team together that really buys into this, and at the same time are driving into work and thinking, that's not my company, unfortunately. Um, to those people who might have that feeling of, gosh, you know, I just, I just feel like there's, you know, I'm, I'm depressed walking in because I don't have that in my organization. What would you say to those folks? Same thing Churchill said way back when, never, ever, ever, ever give up. It's too important. Uh, for me, I decided at a certain moment in my career that the risk of staying the same was far greater than the risk of change, and I ran towards change. This is way too important. This is where you spend the majority of your waking hours. You spend it at work. Find memos. Menlo's fun. Menlo's, I'm telling you, this is a very selfish pursuit for me. This is, I built the place that I want to work in. My co-founder feels the same way. The fact that we've got 50 other people who want to work here too, that's awesome because we probably couldn't do what we were doing without them. But understand that this is a very selfish but noble journey uh, for Menlo. The other thing is, while Menlo is rare, we're not unique. There are many other great cultures. They might not look just like Menlo, but I can tell you there are lots and lots of awesome companies. And if you're not in one of those, give it a college try. Do the best you can to try and change the one you're in. It's going to be hard. This is nothing about getting to Menlo is easy. In fact, it's not easy every day, but it's joyful. And joy is not about being happy every day. 
And so I would just encourage your listeners to keep pushing forward. Look for inspirational authors, whether it's my book or, you know, any of the others that are, there are great books out there. Obviously, if they're listening to you, Dave, they're already making a great first step by investing time, investing in themselves. Those are all the things you need to be doing. Look for inspirational examples. Look for mentors out in the community, wherever you happen to be, maybe within your own organization. Try and change your little piece of the world. You don't have to boil the ocean. Just change your piece. Make your piece better, and maybe the rest of the company will start visiting and saying, hey, why are these guys doing so much better than the rest of the company? Make your little piece better. And if you can't, if you're prevented, if somebody slaps you down and says, don't do that here, that's not the way we are, then go find another place to work. Life's too short. Rich Sheridan is the author of the new book, Joy, Inc., how We Build a Workplace People Love, and that workplace is Menlo Innovations, where he is the co-founder and CEO. Rich, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom, and thanks for the great work you're doing out there in the world for people. Thank you, Dave, and I appreciate the opportunity to share this message with your audience. They're doing some pretty cool stuff at Menlo, aren't they? Boy, just a really neat, inspiring look at how an organization can do things differently. And like Richard said, this wouldn't be a model that would work in every organization. But my hope is, is that what you take away from this conversation is not to go out and necessarily do everything that they've done at Menlo, uh, but maybe to spark a few ideas of what you might do in your own organization that would work towards the environment that you want to create for the people you lead. And it's going to get people engaged and motivated about showing up in the workplace with joy. And that's one of the big stopping points for most people is they'll, you know, to go to my question I asked Richard is they'll walk into the workplace and they'll say, well, you know, that's fine for that organization, but you don't know my boss. You don't know the culture. You don't know the toxic environment that we're in. And I echo what Richard says is that if your mindset is that you can't do anything, then you will continue to go down the path that you've done. And all of us in almost every situation, even if we're in that toxic environment, even if we have the manager that doesn't support a lot of change or growth or looking at things in a creative way, there are always small things we can do to get started along this path. And that's one of the things I love about Richard's story is that they didn't create this overnight by any means. I, I love when he talks about just kind of starting off in a previous position, in a previous organization, just starting off as an experiment with getting a couple people to work together and seeing how that worked and just calling it an experiment. And I think we all have the opportunity to do things like that. So I would really challenge all of us to think of what's one thing that we could do today or this week or this month that would bring joy into the workplace or improve the culture in the organization. And if you can't think, if, you, if you're not able to think of something big or not able to um, move forward on a large initiative, that's okay. Do something small. Do something that is going to be doable in the short term to get started down that path. And if you can do that, then you're along the path to getting started to being able to think differently and to bring real value to your organization and the people who are there. And I would love 
to hear the answer to that question. What's the one thing that you will do to bring joy into the workplace? And so the best way to answer that is to go onto the website and join the conversation about this topic on this episode. And the best way to do that is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash 122. That'll take you to the notes for this episode, as well as the conversation form at the bottom. So again, I'd love to hear your answer to that question. One thing you'll do today to bring joy into the workplace, and if not today, this week, this month, but sometime in the near future that will get you applying and utilizing and getting value from this conversation. And of course, check out the video and the book link on there as well too. Hey, uh, if you have feedback about the show or uh, have any questions for me either on this topic or any topic, you can always send that in at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And there is going to be another question and answer show coming up in the very near future. I aired a Q&A show last month, and I'm trying to incorporate more and more uh, question and answer segments into upcoming shows because I'm getting more questions and I'd really like to uh, be able to have even more dialogue here on the show from you, the community. And so I am going to start to see if we can get a topic focused around the Q&A shows um, because I think that'll make it, uh, it'll make it really valuable for you as you're listening on really getting some specific feedback in a particular topic area. So coming up at the end of this month, episode number 125 will air, and the topic for that episode is going to be on time management, but it is going to be an all Q&A show. So if you have a question about time management systems, task lists, uh, utilizing good practices around managing your time, schedule, calendar, uh, any struggles that you're running into around that, and resources that you're looking for here at the beginning of the year, this is a popular topic for so many of us at the beginning of the year, just about every beginning of January, I think about my time management system and how I'm utilizing my time and my calendar. And so I think this will be a really valuable conversation for our community. So if you have a question related to time management, get that in now for consideration on episode 125. And the best way to submit a question is by audio at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. You can leave your audio question there. I always give preference to audio questions because I love to hear your voice on the show, and I know that the rest of us would love to hear your voice as well. Hey, I want to say before I go, a big thank you to everyone who subscribed to the weekly update of getting the articles, and now, of course, the show notes in each update. And a special thank you this week to Juha Rahola, Mir Ali, Chad Balente, Donnie Melford, uh, nope, Mefford, sorry, Donnie, Simon Cooper, Varun Perla, Sanjay Patel, Craig Strickler, Terry Cow, Melissa Hecht, Hani Alushala, Par Huglund, Reza Amadi, Rebecca Mohon, Lynn Schaefer, Teresa Gibson, Renee Rasmussen, Klaus Feltham, Dick Donovan, Melissa Williams, Sylvia Emery, and Ron Ectonocter, who have subscribed to the weekly update this past week. Thank you to all of you who have done that. I'm so glad to have you as part of the Coaching for Leaders community as well. And I do publish the update every Wednesday that will give you a quick booster shot between the shows on how to lead better with an article on communication, human relations, personal productivity. It's a fast read. Plus, you'll get the show notes for this episode and every episode going forward. And if you'd like to get that in your inbox, just go to coachingforleaders.com 
facebook.com slash subscribe. Plus, you'll get access right away to a video overview and a downloadable guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. It's a great overview of things to get you started as a leader. So I really encourage you to check that out too. Hey, have a great week and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Take care.